1: New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we'll talk with Austin Smythe, a former top congressional staffer, an executive branch official, about the potential costs and legislative prospects for a major reconciliation bill this fall. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Well, Austin Smythe, our guest this week, has over 30 years of experience working in the federal government, both in the legislative and executive branches. He worked for Congressman uh, Paul Ryan As policy director in the office of the speaker when Paul Ryan was speaker from 2015 to 2019 and he also worked with uh, Paul Ryan in other capacities uh, on the ways and means committee as policy director uh, and a seven year stint as House budget committee staff director uh, when uh, Ryan was the chairman. Previously, Austin served as the Executive Associate Director of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, that's the President's Budget Office, under President George W. Bush, uh, where he served as Acting Director in uh, June of 2003 while while they were getting a permanent director confirmed. Austin and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you. yeah, well, um, this is turning out to be anything but a routine year for the federal budget. Uh, so far, we've already had uh, a big emergency spending bill for COVID relief with a price tag of almost $2 trillion. Uh, we've had a bipartisan physical infrastructure bill in the Senate uh, with a price tag of between $500 billion and a trillion, depending upon how you count it. It's really difficult to figure out exactly what the cost of that bill is. I've tried several times. Um, And and now uh, they're working on a so-called reconciliation bill uh, which we'll explain in a minute um, of up to 3.5 trillion with maybe about half of that offset by tax increases or spending cuts uh, all yet to be written. And we shouldn't forget that we've still got uh, the 12 annual appropriation bills that have to be passed before September 30th, or we have a government shutdown. Probably we'll have a continuing resolution, which is another technical term that we can talk about. But we've got uh, that that needs to be done. And not to be forgotten, and we definitely will talk about this, is that sometime in the fall, they're going to have to do something uh, with the statutory debt limit, which came back into uh, place uh on august uh, 1st so just for context before we get into all of these bills um the congressional budget office projects that even with no additional legislation current law would produce 12 trillion of new debt over the coming years uh coming 10 years and that would all leave the debt at its highest uh, recorded level relative to the economy, um, and uh, annual budget deficits approaching two trillion dollars by 2031. So it's, it's kind of a uh, there's a lot in play right now. But the very let's, anxious let's time talk. to be a fiscal hawk. <laughs> it is. It's. Uh, it's. Uh, oh my God! Uh, if all the three of us, if we could go back, uh, like. Twenty years, or you know, maybe Austin and I could go back thirty years, and I, Tori, you'd, you'd be in high school by that time, so we wouldn't. But I think if, if we went back, uh, you know, this just would have been totally, totally unbelievable. I mean, any of the things I just said would have been fantasyland. Um, but but here we are. So Congress is considering this reconciliation bill. That's going to be the big thing that they get to, when they come back. Um, both of you have had a, a real-world experience drafting um, reconciliation bills and thinking about the rules of engagement on reconciliation bills. So I want to give our listeners a little bit of a primer on that, because reconciliation, by definition, is not regular order. It's, it's not like how you learn a textbook in, in class. Um, there are limits to what you can do with reconciliation and trade-offs. And in seeking to pass their $3.5 trillion spending bill um, through reconciliation, the Democrats gonna have to face some difficult choices. So Austin, uh, as our, as our guest, let me uh, uh, start with you. And um, if you wanna talk about some of those trade-offs Including something called the Bird Rule, and why that's so important to reconciliation.
0: Well, let me just begin by saying, first of all, on the 3.5 trillion dollar bill, that's a ceiling for the uh, the Senate uh, in terms of and the Congress to hit. Those instructions are, they can do less than 3.5 trillion um, uh, in in terms of a, the ultimate bill. Um, so they've got some flexibility, but your point on reconciliation is critical. Is reconciliation is limited in terms of what they can do. The Senate, under regular order, um, any senator is able to uh, have to um, unlimited debate, unlimited amendments on other legislation. That's not the case with reconciliation, uh, and the reason that's not the case was uh, it has. I mean, the reason the bird rule came along. Pardon me was. Um, there was concern that reconciliation was being abused, and the Bird Rule has been around a while. It first was surfaced in the '80s, 1980s, um, but it's had a huge impact on reconciliation bills. And the Bird Rule to simplify it, Tory can jump in because it's a complicated rule. There are six different tests that are uh, that apply, but to simplify it, not get into all of those details, it essentially uh, provides that a provision. Um, cannot be in a reconciliation bill unless it has a budgetary impact, and not just a budgetary impact, a direct and material impact uh, on the budget. Um, And if you don't, uh, if it doesn't meet that test, it can be extracted through a legislative procedure by a senator raising a point of order, and that bill is taken out of, that. pardon me, that provision that violates the bird Rule is taken out of the bill. So one of the things that's done when you're developing a reconciliation bill, whether it's Republicans or the majority and control the process or what the case now where Democrats in the majority is, they're going to do a lot of work in advance to make sure they eliminate all the bird rule violations or at least limit them. So bill, a lot of this will not be in the public spotlight. You won't be able to go to C-SPAN and watch the Senate chamber or the House chamber. A lot of this work on the bird rule will be done in advance before the, uh, the bills actually move.
2: I think one of the things that's important to point out about the, the Bird role and reconciliation in general is as it was first created, the objective was to make changes in existing laws pertaining to mandatory spending and revenues. Um, It gets really hard in reconciliation to stand up new programs because of all these restrictions imposed by the bird rule. A lot of the architecture surrounding new programs, just, you know, clerical things that you need to do and and definitions and and, and things, they can get really hard to get those through the the bird test screens, um, which makes it very difficult to stand up New programs, for example, like the ones that the Democrats uh, may be c- considering in their reconciliation bill, because the bird rule can extract and 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 eliminate so many of those of, of those supporting uh, supporting legislative language, supporting provisions, and in the end, you end up with you know a reconciliation bill that essentially looks sometimes like like Swiss cheese. And and I know um, you you will hear Senate staffers frequently talk about how. Uh, the bird rule and reconciliation allows you to pass legislation really quickly but it doesn't necessarily mean that that legislation is good legislation you know <laughs> the bird rule essentially makes bad laws
1: so tori that that leads me to think of some things that have been done in the past with reconciliation bills i mean to i think one of the one of the criteria of the bird rule is that it's not supposed to increase the uh, budget deficit uh, over uh, beyond 10 years mm-hmm. so uh you can you can sunset a program if you want to do that. You can start a new program, but then so it doesn't inc- uh, increase the deficit beyond ten years, you just sunset it. Uh, in other words, assume that it goes away. And
2: force uh, a future sometime. Congress, yeah, and you force a future Congress to have to deal with it. And I and Austin, you know, having been in Ways and Means Committee and. Uh, yeah, you can talk about the, the impact of, of, of what that's done to tax policy over the years as we pursue tax policy and reconciliation, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, there, there's uh, Congress on tax provisions that uh, sunset, uh, that's been done largely in reconciliation, but not only reconciliation, there've been some other laws. Uh, there's a, a perennial bill, that comes up usually at the end of the calendar year, which is called tax extenders, uh, and those provisions are usually extended, but not always extended. It's something that Congress has to do. If they don't, then uh, it reverts to the previous law. So if it's a reduction in taxes or a new credit or some new provision, it reverts to current law unless Congress extends it. And we, we face that now. I mean, are not we, the, the, uh, um, the uh, congressional Democrats face that now. Uh, the, the COVID bill included a new t- child tax credit and that expires at the end of this year. Now, the uh, the, the rumor is they're gonna to try to ex- they're going to try to extend that in this reconciliation bill, but that, that provision has a, uh, a big revenue impact, a big revenue or, or big budget impact. So that, that'll be one of the challenges they face. So they face that already, not before they even get into um, the new spending they may wanna do in this bill.
1: Yeah, so I mean, one way to do it is just have the child tax credit sunset in 2016, uh, 2026 or 2027 or something. And it makes uh, budget projections very difficult because nobody believes that that would actually happen. Um, another, another limit in reconciliation is just the scope of what you can do. I mean, I think a lot of people were following the attempt to raise the uh, federal minimum wage in the spring that was uh, originally part of the the COVID relief bill and the Senate parliamentarian ruled that that was beyond something that you could do in reconciliation, because it didn't have that direct budgetary impact, Austin, that you were talking about. Is there other things that are being considered that that you've read about in this upcoming reconciliation bill that uh, have a, Likelihood, or at least some high probability, of, of facing the same sort of challenge. Well, I think that,
0: that depends in terms of what the committees are going to do. This process is starting in the House. Um, I think next week is starting in the committees are going to start writing the bills in the House, and I'm sure the staffs are already at work on it. But there've been been suggestions by various House members and outside groups about immigration, uh, uh, the, the dealing with immigration issues, I think that's going to be a very hard sell to the parliamentarian to, uh, to meet the bird rule. There's um, clean energy standards. I think you can do subsidies for uh, for energy projects or you can do taxes on, on energy, but to do a, a standard, a regulatory standard, I think that's going to be a very hard sell to get that by the, the parliamentarian. One of the big uh, uh, premier bills for the, uh, I think, for the Democratic majority has been a a bill dealing with voting laws. Uh, uh, Again, I think it's going to be nearly impossible to put any of that into reconciliation. And I'm sure there are others. There are environmental policies. Uh, The President has a very ambitious schedule. Um, The Democratic majority in the House and Senate has outlined a very ambitious schedule. And they're not going to be able to put all that in reconciliation. A lot of that's going to have to be either modified and limited, which Tory referenced earlier, or it's just going to come out like the minimum wage did. It's not going to be allowed to be in the bill. Mm-hmm.
2: I also think it's an opportunity for, for people who are going to be creative in, in drafting legislation. I, I think um, a good example of this is, is looking at, for example, one of the goals, I think, of the Democrat majority has to deal with uh, mandated family leave um, You know, for for all all businesses. Um, If if they were to, for example, use a right into the reconciliation bill, a labor department directive to create regulations or to even mandate within the reconciliation bill that all companies all businesses provide mandatory family leave for their employees up to a certain amount Um, i think that would run afoul of the bird rule because that's something that's behavioral in nature they're trying to change behavior with the reconciliation bill rather than something that is inherently and primarily budgetary but if for example you were to go into the internal revenue code and provide a big tax credit or tax incentive for small businesses large businesses any business to provide family leave that's something that would probably pass muster, and and could be included in a reconciliation bill. So, uh, reconciliation is is one way where uh, people that that draft legislation for a living can can really demonstrate some some creativity and and get uh, uh, legislation through. Um, but uh, you can also see where if you're not thinking, uh, you know, in multiple of different directions, you get tripped up by the by the bird roll
1: i, I kind of like the uh, phrase that people have for that process before before they take a vote it, the bill has to go through a bird bath <laughs> or bath if you <laughs> to see if if, if and we use the phrase is something birdable and uh so anyway a lot of these uh, interesting washington terms uh you're listening to facing the future i'm your host bob bixby Tori Gorman and I are talking with Austin Smythe, a former policy director in the office of House Speaker Paul Ryan, along with many other things on Capitol Hill and in the executive branch. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Austin Smythe, a former policy director in the office of House Speaker, former House Speaker Paul Ryan. Uh, Austin was also a staff director for the House Budget Committee and once served as acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. So he's got a lot of experience in the executive branch and the uh, congressional branch. We were talking about reconciliation, this um, special p- process for getting bills through in the, uh, in the Senate. Um, so there's a, because the uh, Senate is split 50-50, uh, they can, technically speaking, Uh, pass any sort of reconciliation bill with just these 50 votes plus the vice president's tie-breaking vote. That's why they want to go with reconciliation, because it avoids the need to try to have to get 60 votes. Um, But the politics of it are still rather difficult. Uh, it It does mean that any one Democratic senator can hold up the whole thing. And you know recently there's been a lot of um, focus on two Democratic senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten cinnamon cinema uh, of uh, Arizona because they have expressed some concern about uh, the size of the potential size of the reconciliation bill that's in the budget resolution 3.5 trillion that we talked about before um, so what does that uh, what does that do in the I mean, if you were back, both of you on Capitol Hill, what would that do to the, the negotiations that would take place? Are are, are Mansion and Cinema pretty much writing the reconciliation bill?
0: I think they're critical players in the reconciliation bill. Um, they both were uh, made statements um, earlier in the month about concerns about the size of the instruction. They were not to be the reconciliation instruction, the three point five trillion you mentioned and they both expressed concerns about the impact on the deficit and the debt of of the bill, which could be, as I understand, as high as like $1.8 trillion, $1.7 trillion, based on the instructions. Uh, And then beyond that, um, uh, Senator Manchin has expressed concerns in the past about particularly the uh, increase in the corporate tax rate. Uh, I think he's, I think he's, it sounds like, based on statements, he's okay increasing the corporate tax rate, but not as much as, as uh, the president's proposed. Um, and there can be other provisions that uh, the president's proposed that are likely to uh, that have brought criticism from the Hill, dealing with the estate tax, potentially the way capital gains are handled, capital in the, in the tax code. And above all this, in terms of my experience, when you're dealing with a proposal that's described in very simple, broad terms, that's one thing. But when you have to reduce that proposal to legislation and then get the budget estimates associated with it, it gets a lot harder uh, in terms of getting it done. But ultimately, I think the, um, the Democratic leaders, Senator, I mean, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi in the House, and by the way, the House only has a four seat margin as I look at it. There, it's, not a, it's not a given that something's gonna get out of the House. They got a similar challenge over there with their moderates. Yeah. But uh, I think Speaker Pelosi um, and Senator Schumer, the majority leader in the Senate, know their conference, and they're gonna work to uh, to make sure that legislation can get a majority in their two houses. But that doesn't mean it's not a huge challenge. It's, let's say it's uh, always hard on controversial big proposals. Um, and, and they, they are, I think they face a, a particularly challenging time with everything else that's going on and, and the other things they're gonna have to deal with this fall. They got a big, big series of um, hurdles they gotta clear to get this thing done.
2: Yeah, I think if, if I'm Schumer or if I'm uh, uh, Pelosi, I'm, I'm looking at my, my potentially recalcitrant uh, members and I'm asking them to, to evaluate, you know what do you need to get to yes? What do you need? Not what do you want, but what do you need to get to yes? And it may be something that's on this particular reconciliation bill, or it could be future legislation in another area.
1: Well, one of the things uh, that members both in the House and the Senate, some on the Democratic side, have expressed concern about is uh, is the deficit impact and uh, whether or not it, it would be the reconciliation bill would at least some of it, at least half of it maybe be uh, be paid for. So it wouldn't all add to the deficit. And, and uh, that leads to, you know, what kind of offsets do you have? Now, the things that are being proposed are tax increases. And it, it strikes me that tax increases are not easy to pass. And if you're talking about raising $1.75 trillion in taxes to offset Partially the 3.5 trillion in new spending and a reconciliation bill, that could get awfully difficult if they can't agree on revenue offsets or spending offsets, which are always difficult. Do they scale back their ambitions or just find that they the stuff is too important and we'll just go ahead and do it without you know, we'll borrow, we'll we'll just increase the deficit. How are the offset? How is the what are the politics of the offsets?
0: I think Tory's already described the process of, of, in the end, this comes down, that the critical steps are to get a majority in the House and to get a majority of the 50 votes in the Senate. And there's a, both in the House and the Senate, they have a, a, a whip uh, that, and, and they've got elaborate operations between the House to, to make sure they know where people are and, as Tory said, what they need in order to get to yes, to be willing to vote for, for a bill. My expectation is, and we saw this on ARPA, but I think ARPA had a great deal more m- momentum behind it. ARPA was the COVID bill done at the beginning of the year. I had a great deal more momentum behind it because you had a new president, you had a, uh, the COVID situation was, was, was really bad, and I think there was a lot of public support for it. Um, that bill, I think, had a $1.9 trillion price tag on it and what it's gonna add to the, to the deficit. I don't think we see the same level of urgency uh, and support. And also there's just a lot of other things going on. So that's going to complicate and all that signals to me that this bill is not going to be 3.5 trillion and it's not going to have 1.7 trillion or it's not likely to be 3.5 or have $1.7 trillion in offsets. I think it's going to shrink in order to, uh, to um, on both the offsets and the total price tag of the bill to, um, to get the support of the moderates, but the the challenge for Speaker Pelosi, who by the way is extraordinary in terms of her ability to hold her conference together, is will be to make sure she keeps the progressives in her conference who want a big ambitious package on board while she's bringing the moderates on board. And she is very, very skilled at doing that. But I think as Tori described, you're gonna see the bill modified um, probably uh, provisions dropped. And then there'll be other things done. You, we talked earlier about uh, the, the gimmicks, which you characterize as gimmicks is if something, if they're trying to reduce the cost of the bill, they could start a program and just sunset it or expand a program and just sunset it. And that'll shrink the price tag. So I think it'll be some combination of all of those that will ultimately be done in order to get the votes. But they've got a big, big challenge there they face in terms of getting this bill through the House and Senate.
1: Does, does dynamic scoring figure into that in any way? That is the, the idea of assuming that you're going to get very positive economic feedback from what you're doing and that that will reduce the deficit effect. Does that have any role in the uh, reconciliation process? It
0: can't, it, it can't be used as an offset, particularly in the Senate. It's uh, an offset. So it doesn't have anything to do in the process. I also think that the work that's been done, and you, you and Tori can probably chime in, is things more in the hard infrastructure area are more likely to generate um, uh, economic growth, dynamic scoring that it's gonna cause the economy to grow. Even in that case, if, uh, if, if the, the inf- higher infrastructure spending that leads to economic growth is not offset, that's gonna be a drag on future economic growth. So I think if they were to ask for the Congressional Budget Office uh, an, an estimate in terms of how much this bill is going to benefit the economy over the long run, if it has a big deficit impact, it's likely to. Uh, it may not be the answer they want, but it can, they can't use it in any event. The, the, the budget estimates from dynamic scoring to um, to meet these to, the, to meet the reconciliation uh, instructions.
1: Yeah, Tory. If if we're going to go through the process of um, raising taxes, just like hypothetically, if they were going to raise the corporate tax back up or. Unwind some of the other tax cuts that were enacted, or come up with some new ideas on—I don't know—taxing uh, the wealthy, have a, uh, you know, having a wealth tax, or any any of the ideas that have been floated. Would it make sense to use some of that to fill the budget hole that we already have?
2: The, 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 and this, this, yeah, yeah, Hot button issue for me. That's,
1: that, that, that's a softball. That's like right <laughs> over the plate. Right over the plate.
2: Is... Right over the plate.
1: Step up with now, your. Uh...
2: <laughs> so the bruise you see on my forehead is, is for me banging my head against the wall uh, after I read all of these articles. It, I, I mean, I applaud uh, the president Biden uh, for at least, uh, you know, putting the thought forward that he wants to pay for all of his his new policies. But don't forget that before COVID, uh, before all of this, before President Biden, we had a truckload of unfunded, Uh, obligations uh, uh, in the federal budget, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. We had, you know, Congressional Budget Office was predicting deficits as far as the eye could see. Now that we are in the smack middle of of COVID, you know, we've we've run up huge uh, amounts of debt because all of the emergency spending on behalf of COVID was debt financed. Uh, As we consider, as Democrats consider all of these new revenue sources, (laughs) I think it would be more fiscally prudent if they directed some of those revenues towards either paying down the debt or shoring up uh, Social Security and, and, and Medicare. I mean, we know uh, that those programs are not on, on a sustainable path. Uh, they, are, they are contributing significantly to future deficits. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to, uh, to consider new revenues to pay for new spending. I think we ought to consider new revenues to pay for the spending that we've already promised and can't fulfill.
1: Well, uh, this is time for our second break. So let's, uh, let's let people think about that before we uh, come back and talk a little bit about the debt limit. Uh, You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with Austin Smythe, a veteran of uh, the Capitol Hill and, and the executive branch. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Tori Gorman and I are talking with Austin Smythe, uh, former staff director of the House Budget Committee and policy advisor to uh, Speaker Paul Ryan, and acting director of the Office of Management and Budget. We happen to be at the statutory debt limit. It came into effect in August after having been suspended for two years. and Literally, what that means is the Treasury can't borrow to pay its bills. Uh, and when you're running a, a budget deficit of three trillion dollars or so, that's that's a problem. So the Treasury Department at the moment is able to take what is often called extraordinary measures, which are just temporary procedures, that they can shuffle the books around a little bit to prevent the, uh, the debt limit from being breached. But the point is that we're there now and those extraordinary measures run out. Sometime in the fall, nobody can give an exact date. So at some point between now and the end of the year, there are various estimates, let's say it could happen in October, depending upon how the September uh, receipts are from uh, corporate and individual tax payments. Uh, could could happen in September. It could happen in November. I don't know. We don't know. What we do know is that uh, at some point, Treasury won't literally wouldn't be able to pay its bills, and that's what the the debt limit means. So, um, you know, we've all been through these debt limit fights, and they always seem to get it uh, worked out. But this really seems to be a particular problem because it's coming. It's likely to happen along with all of these other things that are happening: acrimony over a huge reconciliation bill, um, you know, and the, the appropriation bills that have to be done. So, I, I, I guess, like any guesses on <laughs> how it might be resolved in the and and and. Let's think about some of the ways in which it's been resolved in the past and why that might or might not be uh, a likely scenario in this case. So in the past,
0: Austin? the way that uh, the debt limit has been dealt with, and I, I don't recall how long this has been happening. I think since um, it was extended in 2010, the Congress used to increase the debt limit by a, a number. So it it by whatever was necessary for a certain period of time. I think starting after 2010, the subsequent debt limits, it was, they suspended the debt limit for a time period, which is what we were, uh, that expired at the end of July, which you've already mentioned. And I think that the the reason for that was to take some of the sting out of the vote. You weren't increasing, you know, you weren't voting to increase the debt limit by, uh, you know, trillions or hundreds of billions of dollars. You were just suspending it. The other thing that's been done, I think for most of the uh, bills, uh, the debt limit increases since 2010, have been done in other vehicles, which were usually large bipartisan measures, um, a budget agreement, bipartisan budget agreement, or so forth. Um, The debt limits can be raised in a reconciliation bill, but in doing the budget resolution, which authorized the reconciliation process, they did not include uh, the authority for the reconciliation bill to include a debt limit increase. So they can't do it in, uh, I don't think they can do it in in reconciliation, which means it's gotta go through the standard process. And um, Republicans have been been very critical of the the deficit impact of of the bill at the beginning of the year, the COVID bill, which had a lot more in it than just COVID and are very critical about this reconciliation bill and made it clear they're not gonna help or facilitate the passage of the debt limit. So there's gonna be some kind of standoff in how that gets resolved. I, I don't know. It seems to me either uh, um, uh, I, it, it, there has to be some compromise done on the debt limit, but to do that, it's gonna require um, congressional Democrats to make concessions to Republicans that I don't think they're gonna to wanna to do. So I think it's a bit of a, it's really just unclear um i don't think anybody wants to face a default i think people will, will try to avoid that but um i think the idea that the republicans are going to uh, facilitate the passage of a clean debt increase is the democrats are moving a bill that increases the debt up to 1.7 trillion dollars that they are dead set against that has a bunch of tax increases in it um uh i just that's i don't think that's going to happen i think uh and, and that appears to be the wager that the, uh, uh, the Congressional Democratic leadership is making right now. And I, I don't know how it's gonna get resolved to answer your question, where <laughs> you started, but those are some of the factors. And there's, just to add to your point, it's not just the CR and all of that. We've got the Afghanistan situation. We've got the COVID Delta uh, situation. We've got um, a, a lot of other stuff going on. We've got these two infrastructure bills, the hard, bipartisan hard infrastructure. So there's just a lot going on that that uh, that the members and the leadership and the in the Biden administration are going to have to deal with. And we got Ida that just went you know, fall The hurricane Ida is another thing that's likely to 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 um, to require the attention of uh, of the administration members of Congress. So I don't know how it gets resolved in all of that, uh, but I think uh, it's it's going to require some kind of compromise um, with Senate Republicans or some ability where the Democrats end up passing it on their own through a reconciliation type like process.
2: Mm-hmm. I, I just to put a, uh, another comment into what Austin is saying, I, you know, it looks to me that Republicans and Democrats are engaged in a giant game of chicken. Right. The, the, the Democrats are saying to Republicans, hey, you played a large role in creating the deficits that are requiring or mandating this increase in the debt limit, so you should be willing to step up and help vote to increase the debt limit, and Republicans are saying, um, excuse me, but you passed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill on a, on a largely party-line basis uh, in the spring, and now you're talking about a $3.5 trillion spending bill that you absolutely are going to pass on a party-line basis. We don't want any part uh, of, of raising the, the debt limit at all. So you've got these two, two parties that are, are literally playing chicken with each other. Um, but I think something that Austin said gives us a clue to how this might play out. And I say might, and I include that in huge italics and in, 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 in quotation marks. And, and that is, um, it would not surprise me at all if at the end of September, uh, Democrats managed to pass a temporary funding measure that keeps the government open uh, until December, and along with that, a temporary suspension of the debt limit until December. I think that that's potentially something that might be doable, maybe. Um, but that just punts the problem to December. But as as Austin said, in the past, debt limit increases were part and parcel of a, a much larger bill. In the past, they were included in... Uh, Agreements that increased the discretionary spending caps. So Republicans were happy to increase the spending caps for defense. Democrats were happy to increase the spending caps for for non-defense. So they all got together and they threw tacked on this this suspension in the debt limit. It passed, and everybody was happy. It passed on a bipartisan basis. So in December, what do we have coming to roost? Do we have? We're going to have to deal with funding the government on a, on a permanent basis in December. We've got tax extenders. Uh, we, we've got, we'll probably have to deal with, with uh, I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if that's when we're actually dealing with the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, because of delays uh, uh, elsewhere. And maybe that might be the appropriate vehicle uh, to attach some sort of suspension in the debt limit, maybe with some uh, window dressing around the edges uh, on on budget process reforms that might make it a little bit more palatable for Republicans to provide uh, the, the 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 ten or so votes needed to get that sort of omnibus bill across the finish line. But no doubt about it about it, where we we sit right now, we're, we're looking at this massive game of chicken and how this is going to play out in September and October. Um, it, it's 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 not certain. I mean, I see a potential path, but. I would not assign any probabilities to it whatsoever.
1: <laughs> so I think the, the the politics of it has changed so much that in the past you really could hang a debt limit increase on something that the parties could agree on fiscally, whether it was tight appropriations caps or, you know, some measure of spending restraint, um, sequestration of some sort somewhere down the road. Uh, but in this instance, you know, the the Democrats are clearly seeking to increase appropriations. Um, And, uh, you know, they're obviously seeking to raise uh, mandatory spending as well as uh, revenues. So fiscally, I don't see anything to to hang a compromise on. Maybe you just lose it in the fog of war. You just there's so many things that have to be done. You just attach it onto something because, you know, I don't think anybody wants a default. I mean, nobody actually wants a default. But the parties have gotten themselves into such a position that you might get a Uh, An accidental default and you know not not that you sort of stumble into it and that's that's what I worry about the debt limit is it doesn't really do any good in terms of controlling the policies that produce the debt. You get to the debt limit and then you have to pay for it, except if you've got you know in the situation now you're talking about very, very big spending plans. on on one side, I can see the the politics of the Republicans saying, you know, well, we don't have a motivation to cooperate in raising the debt limit, even though technically speaking, the debt that we need to pay for right now is stuff that happens in the past, not stuff that's happening in the future. I don't know how we get out of it.
2: <laughs> so well, I mean, it's. Uh, I mean- it's worthwhile to point out that we've a we've been here before, right? In 2011, that's how we got the Budget Control Act, as we were in this practically the same same situation. So I, I think that that you know we've got creative people on Capitol Hill, um, and I think that there are some things that we can talk about, whether it's something like the the Romney's Trust Act or setting uh, debt to GDP targets, um, that might pull some Republicans along when it when it comes to addressing. Uh, the debt limit. So, um, I agree. Well, you mentioned
1: uh, the, the the you mentioned the um, uh, disapproval a, uh, a disapproval vote in the in the Senate. I think they used one year in the House and Senate. They used one year. They allowed President Obama to raise the debt limit subject to a disapproval vote in the House, which he could then veto. House and Senate, and just Congress. Is that a mechanism that might come back again?
2: It's something that's being discussed. I, I, I've seen it floated in the press. Uh, basically, what it does is it, it flips the the increase in the the, the debt limit or the, uh, on its head. Instead of requiring uh, 60 votes in the Senate to suspend the debt limit or to increase the debt limit, it it would give the the executive branch, of the White House, unilateral authority to suspend the debt limit uh, to a date certain or raise the debt limit to a certain amount, but then allow Congress the ability to uh, consider a resolution of disapproval, which means the, 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 the debt limit suspension or the debt limit increase would go forward, but Congress could then pass a resolution, resolution that says, hey, we disagree with that, but then that resolution would need 60 votes to pass. So it, it just sort of flips the, 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 the process on, a head, on its head instead of needing 60 votes to approve of, of a suspension of the, the debt limit, you need 60 votes to prevent suspension of the debt limit. And that sort of changes the the calculus uh, a a little bit. Um, And that's a possibility, but I'm not sure that that's going to be enough to bring, I mean, just to pass that provision would require 60 votes, right? So, and I don't think that's enough to bring Republicans along. I think they're going to need something more.
0: I agree with that. It, the, the, when this process, the disapproval process was done in the past, it again was part of a larger either deficit reduction bill or budget agreement or something like that. Um, and I don't think the disapproval process alone is going to be, <clears throat> excuse me, enough enough for Senate uh, Republicans.
1: It does leave us on this uh, political dilemma of much easier to vote for the spending increases in tax cuts that produce the debt than it is to explicitly acknowledge what you've done by voting (laughs) to approve the debt that actually comes out of that. And that's the dilemma that we're in now. But uh, for this week, Austin, um, thanks for joining Facing the Future. I really appreciate uh, your insights into this process. And uh, Tori will be speaking again uh, next week. I'm Bob Bixby, your host, for facing the future and thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week.